Hi, this is Gamer UK, and you're listening to Mazacast with Unspeakable Acts and Friends. Please remember, this is for adults only, so if you're not 18, then please find something that won't get you into trouble to do instead. Have a nice, kinky day. Hi, and thanks for downloading another episode. Um, thanks to someone who, someone, anonymous person, donated 40 bucks in the, in the last two weeks to the podcast. Thank you. And, and in fact, uh, hopefully, uh, your donations are, are, are going to be noticed even more and more. I, I just uh, invested in a faster web service, so hopefully the website will load faster, we'll have less crashing, and yeah, so hopefully, hopefully... Uh, but that's all thanks to your donations. You can go to mastercast.com and then uh, click on the donate thing on the upper right-hand side. Got a, uh, a listener email here. said, uh, I liked you on your Facebook page, but I noticed you almost never update the Mastercast Facebook page. You're absolutely right. I created a Facebook page for the Mastercast because someone said I had to create uh, a Facebook page for Mastercast. But I never, I never do anything with it. In fact, the, the biggest thing for the, the Facebook page is reminding me that I haven't done anything with it. So people will like it, and, I'll, and every time someone likes it, I'll go, Ah, fuck! Damn it! I keep forgetting to add shit to that page. So every time you like it, yeah, I remember that I'm uh, way too busy for my own good. Someone will like it, and I'll, I'll, it'll just hit me. Uh, this episode, uh, a conversation with... Uh, someone, one of the listeners, one of you fine listeners suggested I interview her, and I'm so glad you did. Her name is Greta Christina. She's uh, author, raconteur, political guru, wise sage, and uh, awesome person. She's got a new book called Bending, Dirty Kinky Stories About Pain, Power, Religion, Unicorns, and More. And more, as if that wasn't enough. There's more. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, there's a link on mastercast.com and all the other info about her. So here it is, conversation with Greta Christina. I have to say something. I, 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 uh, we were conversing back and forth via email, and uh, I got a, a little nervous at one point because uh, at the very bottom of your email, you, you have several books. Yeah. And at the very bottom of your email, it said uh, one of your books is called Why Are You Atheists So Angry? 99 Things to Piss Off the Godless. And I was like, all right, this is it's on. It's on. <laughs> I'm going to have to go all Christopher Hitchens on you. I was getting worried. And then I, and I actually read. I thought, you know what? I'm probably jumping to conclusions. And then I read the description like, ah, I'm jumping up to conclusions. That's OK. Because <laughs> I, I was like, sod, I'm a little worried. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you, it's actually it's it's a funny you're an atheist, uh, yeah. I am an atheist, okay. yeah, yeah. The book is, is, is 99 Things That Piss Off the Godless, and it's basically trying to answer the question, why are you atheists so angry? Because, as you know, probably, you know, a lot of people ask that question, and they ask it in kind of a douchey way. You yeah. know, it's like with the assumption that, oh, if you're angry, it must be because there's something wrong with you, because you're, you know, miserable or joyless, or you have a God-shaped hole in your heart or whatever. And it doesn't occur to a lot of people that maybe atheists are angry because we have legitimate reasons <laughs> to be angry. Right. And so that's kind of why I wrote the book, was to explain and give a voice to that anger. Well, so. uh, we have we have people of all types of religions that listen to this podcast. We have Christians, and we also have cool people like you and I. <laughs> so, um, but, but you also have, have written a book uh, about BDSM. I have. Actually, it's a, it's a, a, group, a bunch of short stories. 
And uh, I was reading the. I have. I, I looked into the. Uh, the. I talked to the Massacast uh, accountant. We didn't have a budget. It's not a big budget. We didn't have a budget to buy it and read it ahead of time. But I thought, well, I'll just go to the source. But I was reading the Amazon description. Uh huh. And you really run the gambit on this. Uh, as far as the subjects, a baby dyke is manipulated into fetish porn by her beautiful, self-absorbed porn star lover. <laughs> Already. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, you know, so the book is called, you know, for, for, for your readers out there who might be interested, uh, the book is called Bending Dirty Kinky Stories About Pain, Power, Religion, Unicorns, and More. And, you know, honestly, you know, I, th- which I think this is true for a lot of porn writers, a lot of erotica writers, you know, pretty much most of the stories just came out of fantasies I was I was having. You know, it's like things that I was, you know, happily whacking off to. And that would be the germ of the story. And then I'd sort of try to figure out, because I'm the sort of person who, when I have, you know, masturbation fantasies, I want them to make sense. <laughs> you know, it's like I want them to be plausible and I want to know what the backstory is. Uh, and which is so, sometimes frustrating because sometimes my fantasies are not, in fact, plausible. Um, like but that's... Like you know, like the unicorns. That was the exception. That's and there's a whole other story about that which we can get into if you want. But that's that's the one exception to to that rule. But um, that that story was totally written on just a dare. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, generally speaking, it's like I sort of there's there's the germ of what I find hot about a fantasy, and then I'll try to construct a story around it that you know that makes sense, that's plausible. You know, that's, you know, sort of preserves the, you know, whatever the heat of the store of the fantasy is, you know, while making it some, you know, interesting characters and so on. Well, there, so there, there lies the question. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you is if these are your fantasies or not. Now, the next question is, is do you tone down your fantasies at all? Because you don't want, because your friends read it and they're like, whoa, holy cow, Greta is really into some hardcore, <laughs> you know. Uh, do you ever like, okay, I'm going to leave out, I'm going to leave out the, the you know one-eyed sailor out of this fantasy because you know because, Ooh, one-eyed okay. sailor that's a good idea with a, with, a, <laughs> with nothing but hooks for you know and, and there's a fisting with a hook I mean I don't know do you ever do you ever leave out okay that's a little too much for for reader or do, is it like no holds barred well I don't leave out things I don't leave out content because it's too extreme um, I'm pretty much willing to write about any more or less any kind of content but there is something that I do and it's not because it's too extreme or because it would freak people out it's um, a lot of my fantasies are about non-consent or borderline consent you know about you know abuse of power manipulation which I think is true for a lot of kinky people I mean almost by definition being kinky means enjoying fantasizing about and consensually acting out things that would actually suck if they were happening in real life outside of a consensual sexual situation. And so I have a lot of fantasies and a lot of my fantasies are about pretty hardcore non-consent or very borderline consent, abuse of power, pressure, and so on. And if it's just me at home with my vibrator masturbating, that's fine. I have absolutely no issues about that at all. But as a writer and also as a reader of erotica, I have this thing about, again, plausibility. I want the stories to be very believable. I want them to be authentic. But if you're writing plausible, believable stories about non-consent, that's not hot. That's a horror show. Mm. And so what I'm often trying to do when I 
take my sex fantasies about non-consent or abuse of power or whatever and try to craft them into a story, what I try to do is find a way to get across that feeling of non-consent, the feeling of violation, the feeling of abuse of power and so on, but have it actually be at least technically consensual. Um, and there's different ways to do that. Sometimes I'll have it be like fantasy within a fantasy. I'll have characters in the story talking about their fantasies of non-consent. But often what I'll do is have the have the story be one in which consent is technically present, but the character, you know, the, the bottom in the story feels as if consent is not there. They, they, they have that experience of, of being violated, even though technically they could leave at any time. And so it's not a matter of toning it down so my friends don't think I'm a weirdo, my friends already know I'm a weirdo. Um, it's more trying to find that balance between you know, authenticity and plausibility while still getting across you know, the heat of fantasizing about non-consent. One example you have that where you kind of get... And, and I suppose this might be part of your atheism going in as well. Uh, again, based on the, uh, this is the Amazon description. A good Christian wife follows her duty to obey, even as her husband's sexual demands become more bizarre. This almost sounds like it's fulfilling two of your desires to, to you know, expose maybe part of the, <laughs> the underside of Christianity or something. Or, but also, you know, you get to have consensual non-consent, I guess, in a way. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that story is an interesting one. That's based on a lot of my stories, because a lot of my fantasies are inspired by things that I've heard about in real life. And that particular story was inspired by, have you heard about the Christian domestic discipline scene? Yes. Okay, that, that story was inspired by that, basically. So for, those people was, who haven't, for those people who haven't, go ahead and explain it for those people who haven't heard it. Um, well, okay, so first of all, I'm assuming your listeners probably know, but in case they're not, there's the subset of BDSM called domestic discipline in which people, you know, the partners punish each other for real actual misdeeds within the relationship. So instead of like, oh, you didn't do your math homework, you naughty boy or whatever, it's, you know, you didn't do the dishes and you said you would. Um, and so I'm going to spank you. Um, and, you know, these kinds of relationships are, you know, they're consensually agreed to, they cover the gamut in terms of genders and preferences, you know, straight, gay, male, lesbian, male, dom, female, dom. Sometimes the partners take turns who's punishing the other. Mm-hmm. Christian domestic discipline is a subset of that subset, and it's one in which the practitioners are fundamentalist Christians who believe that this sort of relationship where it's always the husband and it's always it's always the husband who's the top and always the wife who's the bottom, in which the husband disciplines the wife for you know, misdeeds in, you know, in the marriage. Of course, it always has to be within marriage. It always has to be opposite sex because supposedly that's what God wants. And, and it's a very weird scene. I've actually written a whole piece, separate uh, nonfiction piece about it on my blog. It's a very weird scene because on the one hand, you know, I think Christians deserve to have be spanked as much as anybody else. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, Christians deserve, you know, whatever clear. And clearly this is a kink. If you read this material, it reads like any other kinky porn you've ever read. They're just doing it. Is it because they need an excuse? And so, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, because because for me, it sounds like something. Well, clearly the Lord said in, uh, you know, Leviticus 23, he said something about thorns. That's what he means. He means that everyone needs to feel pain, you know, or something. There's some sort of bizarre thing that they've read into it. Right. And, but this, this happens to go along with their kink. And so. 
Well, exactly. I mean, that seems to be, you know, and this is, again, from an outsider perspective, uh, this seems to be what it is, that this is their rationalization for their kink. You know, it's like they're fundamentalist Christians. They also have this kink, so they've found a way to convince themselves that God not only accepts this kind of sexual relationship, but actually approves of it and wants them to do it. The thing that concerns me is that it does seem to blur a line into domestic violence, because once you've convinced yourself that God wants you to do this, that makes it a lot harder to get out of. If you change your mind, if you decide, you know, honey, I'm really not into this tonight, or I'm really not into this forever, um, you know, which is what, you know, most kinky people, that's how they do it. If you're done, you're done. You know, you say for it out and you know, and you're done. But if you've convinced yourself that this is the kind of relationship that God wants, and if you've convinced yourself that God wants for the man to always be in control of the marriage and for the woman to always submit, that makes it a lot harder to exit if you've changed your mind. And it also makes it if, you know, a a wife is being pressured by her husband to get into this kind of relationship, it makes it a lot harder for her to say no because there's this religious pressure. There's this idea that if you don't do this, I'm, you're going to burn in hell. And so it's just really complicated and weird, and that complicated, weird stew is, you know, you know, objectively, as a you know, social critic, I find it very disturbing, but as a kinky person, it's a very hot fantasy, yeah. and it does tap into that sort of consensual non-consent thing, that experience where somebody feels as if they're in a non-consensual situation, even though technically they could walk out at any time. And that's why I found it so compelling and why I wrote that story. Uh, So I've done absolutely no research. And I know, obviously, there's so many subjects about your book we can talk about. But just because I'm very curious about this now, has there been an official... Has there been any official word from, like, the Pope or someone who's commented on this type of religious practice? By saying, you know, the Lord Lord doth come down and said, no... uh, they all shall have a safe word. You know, there's nothing like that in there. Is there, you know, it, it, because if you, re- if you read the Bible, you could, pr- you could justify just about any activity you wanted, right? There's just, yeah, absolutely, there's yeah. in owning slaves. There's just tons of different things in there that, uh, and, and maybe, maybe that's what they could say. Hey, technically they meant sexual slaves. They didn't mean, you know, slavery that is the bad kind. Right. Uh, but has there been any official word of someone condemning this activity or, or from, from another I, church I, I, or something? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, certainly I haven't heard anything from the Catholic Church, but this isn't a Catholic practice. This is more, you know, fundamentalist, you know, Protestant, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, practice. Um, So I haven't heard of anything like that. My sense is that they, to the degree that they've heard about it at all, they really just kind of wish it would go away because it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Um, But but no, I I don't know one way or the other uh, the answer to that question. You know, whether, you know, other you know, Christian leaders, fundamentalist leaders or whatever have said, you know, no, this is terrible. You totally misunderstand or, or not. I don't know the answer to that. Probably just ignore it. Right. I mean, that's my sense is that they're just ignoring it, but I don't know that for sure. But if they had that on televangelists, right. If televangelists did that, Mm -hmm. they'd probably get more viewers. I'm guessing (laughs) they might. Well, there is this whole thing in, there's a variety of fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. That's all about their kind of version of sex positivity and trying to have people have joyful sex within marriage. And, you know, it's, so it's kind of, and, you know, there are the, like these preachers who are all about that. So 
you know, maybe those people are like, hey, awesome, you know, spank each other all you want as long as it's consensual and you can say for it out. Uh, but, um, but I don't know that for sure. Those are the ministers that have genuine smiles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> smiles in. Right. Um, well, uh, so again, I'm, I'm guessing, like most people, you have uh, a thousand and one different fantasies that your your brain can go to. How did you decide to narrow down which ones? Was it the ones that we could more easily put in put on paper, or did you just write them out and have someone pick with the top fifteen stories or whatever, and then go from there? It must be it must be very difficult to figure out which ones you want to choose. Oh, that's a that's actually a really good question. Um, and I, for me, writing fiction is very hard. I, I'm a nonfiction writer mostly. You know, I write my blog, I write magazine articles. I've written this atheist rant. You know, nonfiction is mostly what I do, and nonfiction comes so easy to me. You know, I can crank out an essay in an hour or two. A fiction story takes months usually. Um, it takes weeks to even flesh it out, and then like weeks more of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. It's just harder for me, and so I do have to be selective about if I'm going to put the time into writing a fiction piece, what is it going to be? So as to how I decide that, how I decide which fantasies to to actually flesh out into a story, I guess there's a couple of factors. One is just, is it a fantasy that I keep coming back to? Is it a fantasy that, you know, because you know how it is. There's some fantasies it's like, oh, this is fun. I whacked off to it. I had my little orgasm and then I was done with it. And then there are some fantasies that are like again and again and again. It's like you just kind of keep dipping into that well. And at least that's true for me and I think it's true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to spend months really fleshing out a fantasy into fiction form, I want it to be a fantasy that I'm really happy to go back to. And a fantasy where I feel like there's a lot going on, where it's not just sort of a simple, you know, sort of your basic simple power dynamic. Um, I want there to be complexity and layers uh, to it so that, you know, so that I can really make the story be rich. And... Um, so some of it is that some of it is just, you know, is this a story? Is this a fantasy that I keep coming back to over and over again? And then there's a looking at it from a writer's perspective of does this fantasy, again, does it have layers? Does it have complexity? Is there anything about this that would interest anybody other than just me? (laughs) And, um, and to some extent, you know, it's, I, there's a degree to which you can't worry about that. It's, you know, as a writer, you just kind of just write what is on your mind and what's in your heart and what's in your gonads and, um, and get it out there. And if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. And you can't always predict what people are going to respond to, especially you can't predict what people are going to respond to sexually. Of course. Um, you know, it surprised me which stories people have really found hot and which ones they haven't. But, um, but, you know, to some extent, I'm trying to look at, is there something about this, I guess, narratively, more than just sexually, uh, that, you know, that can be explored in a more complex way, that can be ex- explored, you know, in a way that isn't just simplistic. So that's, I guess, the two things that I'm looking at is, is this a fantasy I want to spend a lot of time with? You know, because I get really turned on when I write porn fiction and you know, assuming that I've picked my fantasy well and that it's a story I do want to keep coming back to. And, you know, I tend to, it's like write and whack off and write and whack off and write and whack off. And I want it to be a fantasy that that's going to be true for. I want it to be a fantasy that, you know, hey, midway through writing this, I'm going to want to go take a little vibrator break. Um, and hopefully the readers are going to want to do the same thing. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, what I my hope is that if I'm excited by a story, the reader will be too. Too and and that's a lot of what I'm trying to do as as an erotica writer. Because something that I found as a reader and as a reader and not just as a reader, but like watching videos or looking at photos or whatever. You know, obviously I have my erotic buttons. You know, if you have a story with over the knee spanking, I'm probably going to get at least a little turned on by it. But you know, I have my, you know my little set of erotic buttons that get pushed. But I can also be turned on by an erotic story, even if it doesn't push any of my buttons at all, and in some cases, if it actually has some things that kind of squick me, if the writer has really conveyed what they find erotic about it, if the writer has done a really good job of getting across, why do I find this hot? What is it about this that gets my clit hard or my dick hard or whatever, my nipples hard, whatever it is that, you know, whatever body part it is that gets hard for you when, when you're getting turned on. Um, if a writer can get that across then I'm going to be turned on by it no matter what the content is, with a few exceptions. I have a few hard squicks, but with a few, you know, a few exceptions. And that's what I try to do as a writer, is I try to get across to people, this is what I find hot about this, and even if you don't, even if this isn't one of your particular erotic buttons, hopefully it will turn you on as well. Well, I, I think erotica has that that power in that uh, what people usually do, depending on the situation, they can they can imagine themselves in that person. That's what turns someone on usually. Either they right. imagine themselves, uh, if they're a participant, uh, as the one of you know one of the people either the top or the bottom, or if they're a voyeur, they can imagine watching it. Right. And um, what what I found is that there have been kinks that I have I have been you know I'm like oh, okay I can take I mean I'm a submissive myself, and so when I I remember reading years ago. Uh, a story about about I think it was about spanking, and I never could understand the appeal of it until I read that and and, and saw oh and it was I saw clearly what was the the writer was was hot for uh, was spanking, and ever since then I've been able to kind of t- I don't even remember what the story was about specifically, but somehow it was I was able to trigger the erotic section of my brain so now that I get turned on when I when I'm spanked, but I I had to read it first in order to access that part of my brain. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I've, I've had that experience as well. It's one of the things that I actually really like about erotica, or at least that I like about good erotica, you know, because, you know, Sturgeon's Law applies, 90% of it is crap, but, you know, 90% of everything is crap. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when erotic fiction is really good, and not just erotic fiction, but erotic videos, photos, you know, comics, whatever, when it's really good it can expand my erotic horizons. It's like, oh, I never thought that was hot, but now I can see what's hot about it, and now I can try it. You know, the number of things that I've tried because I saw them or read about them in porn, and I'm now like, oh, I actually really like that. But it took seeing how somebody else saw it and, and seeing how somebody how it tickled somebody else's libido to to get me to see how it might tickle my own libido. And I think that there's another, you know, real plus to it, which is even if it didn't do that, even if it's like, yeah, that's really not for me, I tried it and I didn't like it, or I didn't try it because I could tell I wasn't going to like it, it's gotten me to be less judgmental. It's gotten me to be really more authentically, your kink is okay, um, rather than having that just be theoretical. I hate the word pet peeve, but sometimes it's kind of just what fits and it's easier is there anything when you're reading erotica that's a huge thing for you that obviously you were able to avoid 
when writing your own? Um, boy, that's a that's a long list. Is it? Um, um, I think again, to some extent, this is just a personal preference. But again, total implausibility. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about like you know science fiction or fantasy type. You know erotica where it's you know that's sort of the point is that it's this totally fantasy other world I mean, I'm talking about um, stories that are meant to be in more or less this world but that are just wildly implausible and not just necessarily physically implausible but emotionally implausible you know things like you know the you know the the, the person is kidnapped and then you know as a result of being kidnapped and tormented they discover their true submission and masochism it's like i'm sorry but no um you know it's that just that's no um and it's not that i find it like politically offensive or anything i mean it's like it's a fantasy whatever um you know i'm entirely supportive of people's fantasies but it's just that kind of level of implausibility just it it, it's a turnoff to me if i can't believe that it's really happening um then, then I find it very hard to get immersed in it. Um, For me, it's it's kind of the same way. If I'm reading something, that, you know, because obviously when you're reading erotica to begin with, you have to shut part of your brain off. At least I do. I have to shut part of my brain off that's actually thinking that this is po- you know, that whatever. I have to shut part of that brain off. It's nice when I don't have to, but sometimes if I'm reading something, you know, we were making out, my you know, fiance and I were making out, and all of a sudden. Uh, Cheerleaders from the local college stopped by and they needed their, they said, we, we dropped all this chocolate all over clothes and we need them washed. You know, it's sort of like the pizza delivery guy in porn. Right. It just it does, you know, I'm sorry. You, no one's going to order pizza if they don't have the cash on them. Right. If they're, yeah. they're just irresponsible pizza orderers. <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's just not. And, and, and that part of my brain that should be shut off says, oh, come on. And it kind of, it, it maybe it it's doesn't. It's a buzzkill. It's a buzzkill. It it, it, it has to be. It has to be really good for me to still continue and get off from it, right? Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, so, but they, but again, that's that's you know that's you know more personal preference than anything else. And you know, and again, you know, I certainly it, you know, I have my fantasies that are kind of implausible, but it is this thing where I will spend sometimes just like a good 10 minutes trying to figure out the backstory of the <laughs> fantasy before I can whack off to it. It's, you know, kind of ridiculous. Um, so a, a, a little bit more seriously than that, I do have this pet peeve. There's a trope that I see in a lot of kinky porns particularly, which is, you know, there's all these things that denote a top as being really powerful and really hot. Very commonly, one of the things that denotes a top as being powerful and hot is that they're rich. Yeah. This is something that you just see over and over and over again, sort of how you know that, you know, you know, Master Jake or whatever um, is hot. And one of the things that makes Master Jake or, you know, Mistress, you know, you know, Morgana or whatever hot is that they're really rich. And I that irritates me that politically in a way that I do, that I have a hard time letting go of. And it's not that I want all my porn to be politically correct. I don't, uh, but again, you know, I'm entirely, you know, I feel like fantasies are fantasies. People fantasize about things all the time that they would find immoral in real life. And I don't have an issue with that, but this idea, and I think it wouldn't bother me so much if it weren't so common, but this idea that being rich means being powerful means being sexy really, really bothers me. And 
it kind of occurred to me, I hadn't noticed this until I started collecting my stories and deciding which ones I wanted to include in, in the collection and which ones I didn't, that I don't think there's any characters in my story who are rich in any of my stories. Um, I'd have to like go through and look at them all again. You know, I mean, there's people who are like comfortably middle class and there's people who are more, you know, working class or whatever, but I don't think there's anybody, anybody in any of my stories who are rich. And I think part of me was just really resistant to that trope because it just bothers me. The idea that sexual heat is something that you can buy. So one thing that, that, because I, I really haven't put two and two together until, you just mentioned it because I've I've always uh, whenever I've read uh, when it's male dom female sub, female submissive and the guy is rich I always kind of assumed that was just because there are a lot of people who get off on dating a rich guy I don't I don't know I can't speak for that that's the only that's the only thing I could just why why I assume that but whenever I've and, and now that I realized it there have been a lot of erotica stories that I've uh, that I've read that where it is a very wealthy female dominant. And I have sort of incorporated, even though it's not said, even though it's not said in the story, I guess I've incorporated that in my head. I'll, when I read that, oh, she's very well off, I'm like, oh, well, then that means if I was the slave in this position, uh, she'd make me quit my job because I'd be too busy tied up and fucked all day, you know? <laughs> you know that, that's the only thing that I, you know, I guess I just sort of, even though it was never mentioned, they never said, and because I'm wealthy, you'll be tied up and fucked all day. That's sort of just what you know, my brain made that connection, you know? Um, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, there's a certain practical, obviously, if somebody's rich, it means, you know, first of all, they can buy a lot of toys, they can have the beautiful mansion with the wonderful dungeon, and, you know, they can fly you all over the world to fuck you and beat you in, you know, all the wonderful different places. And as you say, if they don't, if they're independently wealthy, they don't have to work, and you don't have to work, so you can just, you know, have wild kinky sex all day. Yeah. So there is a sort of practical aspect of it. But some of it really seems to be that we associate in our culture, we associate wealth with power and mm. with sexual power. And it's just like, it's almost like it's an equation. And and that aspect of it, I just find squicky. Yeah. You know, I don't like it. So when you when you shop this around, now, your friends, uh, most of them probably already know you're kinky. Yeah, I'm but pretty out. Was there any, when you, did you give any... Uh, Samples of the book to friends to say, hey, give me your opinion on it. I did. I mean, mostly um, I gave it to fellow writers um, and especially to fellow erotica writers because that's a lot of who I want to get Mm -hmm. feedback from, you know, because writers can writers are good at seeing the at seeing and communicating, you know, things about what's wrong with, you know, with a piece of writing. Um, but I also showed it to some, you know, just, you know, my wife, obviously, and, you know, some other just friends. Um, cause, you know, cause I did want a lot of what I wanted was, you know, it's like when you get immersed in your own work, it's hard to have perspective on it. And I didn't have a sense of, you know, which of these stories are really hot. Are there stories here that don't really work? Um, you know, it's, it, there's that thing. This is a thing that I found very much as a porn writer is, it's one of the reasons why it takes me so long to write a story is I'll have a fantasy, I'll find it really hot, and I'll just write out literally what physically happens in the story. And then I'll come back to it later and go, okay, this isn't hot at all because I didn't convey why the characters found it hot. I didn't convey how they felt, what they were thinking, what this meant to them. All I was saying was, you know, and then he spanked her and then she got on her knees and then she turned the tables and then she spanked him and whatever. Um, you know, I didn't get across what it meant to the characters and how it felt. Because your brain already did that when, I mean, 
exactly. in your fantasy, right? Exactly. My brain already knew that, and you know, I sort of forgot. Oh yeah, I actually have to convey that as a writer. Uh, so, and so, some of what friends and colleagues were able to tell me was, you know, these are the stories where you did that really effectively. These are the stories where you didn't. Um, you know, these are the stories where it's just it didn't seem plausible. I didn't get a sense of why the characters cared. You know why they were there. Um, so yeah, so I definitely ran it by people. I think that you know almost always I do that with my writing when I can, just because you know I I'm not perfect, and you know it's like I know I I know that I'm a good writer, uh, and I'm a, a confident writer, but you know I know enough about my writing to know that you know other people's perspective will get me to see things that I didn't see. So that, that this begs the next question: Is that sometimes people will write erotica because it's a way for them to communicate to their significant other, uh, "Hey, this is something I'm into," and it's, it's easier to convey it in maybe in a story than it is just to say, "Hey, I want you to do X to me." Were any of these the case with your wife, or was your wife? Did she already know all of this already? There was none of it. Surprise. Well, she pretty much knew most of this already. There were some things in in the stories that were a surprise to her. Uh, but the thing is, not all of my fantasies are things that I really want to do. So it's, you know, in fact, a lot of what I wrote in in this book are things that I wouldn't really want to do. Um, you know, it's you know, large numbers of the things, you know, are things I wouldn't really want to do. Yeah. And so it wasn't really. I know that there are people who do that, and I can see why they would do that. Uh, but that's not. If I want to talk with my wife about what I want to do in bed. I'd rather just have that conversation rather than try to do it through fiction. Again, because I have all these other things I'm trying to do in fiction. You know, I'm trying to, like, you know, convey, you know, the heat of the non-consent and still make it plausible and make the characters complex and stuff. Trying to add on to that, like, a secret hidden message to my wife about this is what I want, you know, to do next Saturday. Um, that's that's just a level that, you know, that would make it too difficult. So I'd rather just have that conversation directly. So you're one of those weird couples that communicates, is what you're saying. Oddly enough, yes. <laughs> Those creepy, weird couples that, yeah. that come in. Now, we do have to talk about the unicorn and the rainbow. <laughs> you did mention it. You, you, you mentioned uh-huh. that one of your big things is plausibility. What is, why, why then throw in a, a – and I'm, I listen, I, I'm all for unicorns and rainbows. But what, what is it about that story that you said, this is just too good to – I have to put this one in? Okay, so the, that story is a complete outlier. That That is the one exception. It's like I'm talking about all my theories of writing porn, all my theories of what gets me hot in porn as a reader, as a writer. That story is a complete outlier. And in fact, I didn't really even write it to be hot. I mostly wrote it to be funny. Um, and the story was written on a dare. And the story behind the story is there's this erotic reading series that I participate in in San Francisco called Perverts Put Out. If anybody's in the Bay Area, you should totally check it out. It's a wonderful um, like four times a year erotic reading series of, you know, Bay Area sex writers. And I read it pretty regularly. And I'd read a story, and I prefaced the story by with a kind of a little content alert. I said, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the story that some people may find disturbing. You know, there's borderline consent, there's non-consent. You know, it's kind of a dark story. Some people may find it unsettling. And then I said, but when do I ever not say that? Mm-hmm. When do I ever come to Perverts Put Out with a fiction piece and say, this is a really sweet story. This is a happy, gentle, loving story about unicorns fucking rainbows. And at the break, about a dozen people came up to me and said, I really want you to write the story about the unicorns fucking rainbows. 
And so I was like, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so that's the genesis of the unicorn and the rainbow. And it was pr- so it's almost like an exercise in some ways. I mean, it was just kind of written on this dare. I mostly wrote it to be funny and not to be hot. And in fact, one of the challenges of the story was how do I – it's like I got – usually when I write porn, I start with a sex and it's like, okay, here's the sex, and the sex is really hot. And with that story, I wrote everything else first. And it was like, okay, how – I couldn't even figure out physically, you know, how are they going to – I couldn't even figure out the mechanics for a long time about how they were going to do this. You know, how does a unicorn fuck a rainbow? A rainbow doesn't even have physical substance. It's not – doesn't even – you know, it's um, – and uh, so it was pretty much written on a dare. And, and yet that's the story of all the stories in collection – in the collection that – if people mention a story, that's the one. If they're like, you know, not just kind of generically, oh, I really liked your collection. If they, they, and they will almost always then say, and what was up with that one about the unicorn and the rainbow? And interestingly, some people have said that they found it hot, which I'm, I'm baffled by that. I didn't even find that hot when I wrote it. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, again, I mostly just write it, wrote it to be funny as an, as an exercise, but and I was on the fence about including it in the collection, and everybody said, "No, you absolutely have to include it. It's hilarious. It's really distinctive. It's you know the thing that when you die you'll be remembered for." Which great. Um, <laughs> and if, if nothing else, you've added something to the English vernacular in that it's a new phrase that people can use if they can't explain something. They say, "So someone asks you, hey." Why do people vote against their own interests? And you say, well, I don't know. Why? How does a unicorn fuck a rainbow? Yeah, exactly. Yes. And it's going to sweep the nation. Everyone's going to know all about it now. Exactly. Uh, so uh, outside of you, since you're uh, you were an outspoken atheist, and you're also uh, you know you're open kink wise. You know how, like we we said earlier, the uh, the Christians who are into the the flogging and everything like that, they kind of ignore it. They don't want it part of them. One of the one of the stereotypes that some people have of atheists is that we're all crazy sex people and we have no morals. Do you find in the atheist community that they're worried that because you enjoy and you're out crazy sex that people are like, look, you're exactly what the Christians say we godless people are. Do you get any, you know, so even though we agree with you, do you, have you, do you get much of a blowback on that or, or, or mostly not Mostly not. I've gotten a little bit. There was one, a piece I wrote for, a, gosh, I can't even remember which magazine it was, a, one of the humanist, secularist magazines. Um, it was either the Humanist or Free Inquiry. I forget which one. Um, I'd written a piece about, it wasn't even particularly about sex. It was just kind of about sensuality generally and about, you know, sort of the, you know, atheist, humanist, you know, views of sensuality. And one of the things that I had, I talked about, you know, different ways that people can, you know, live in their bodies. And I said, you know, it's like we can accept people having hundreds of sex partners in their lives or we can accept people being totally celibate. You know, this is just a choice. And there are a couple of people who are like, oh, we can't talk about people having hundreds of sex partners in their life. That's unhealthy. But mostly not. Actually, mostly it's been the opposite. And I think it may be because I've been so outspoken as a sex writer from the very beginning, I and mean, I was a sex writer before I was an atheist writer, and that's in fact how a lot of how I built my reputation was as somebody who wrote about both atheism and sex. The sex community came to my blog to read about the sex stuff, and then got into the atheism. The atheist community, you know, is coming to my blog for atheism, and then is getting this sex education. So that's kind of my niche in a lot of ways, and um, and in fact. 
and like I say, there's been a little bit of that, you know, no, no, we can't, you know, scare people away. But actually, there's a starting to be a an idea that's that's bubbling up in the atheist community that sex is our selling point. Yeah. <laughs> that um, uh, in fact, I don't know if you saw this. There was a survey that was done a couple of years ago, a study uh, called the Sex and Secularism Study. That was a, re- a study of like. 14,000, I think, uh, non-believers, you know, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, etc., about their sex lives and asking, you know, how is your sex life? How is your sexual guilt? You know, how do you feel about sex? How do you feel about your body? And so on. And how has that changed? If you used to be a believer, how has that changed? And what they found was, they found a lot of, there was a lot of really interesting findings, but they found a couple of things that are really key. One was that people are overwhelmingly happier with their sex lives after they leave religion. And that's almost regardless of the religion. There's a couple of religions like Unitarianism and Judaism where there's not much change. It's like pretty much the same because those are pretty sex positive religions to begin with. Mm. But for the most part, almost regardless of what religion people were, once they leave that religion, their sex life gets better. And there's like a couple of, you know, there's rare outlier exceptions. It's like people who like, hey, I came out as an atheist and my wife started stopped having sex with me. But mostly people's sex lives improve. And people's levels of guilt decreased dramatically. And in fact, what they found, and this was one of the very surprising findings of the study, was that when people leave religion, the researchers had assumed that a great deal of sexual guilt would stay with people you know, like for years afterwards. Mm-hmm. And they found that that largely wasn't true, that after people had been out of religion for a year or so, their levels of sexual guilt were about the same as people who had been atheists their whole lives. Um, and obviously there's exceptions, that's on average. But um, And one of the things they, they said was that people's sexual behavior doesn't actually change very much. You know, how much extramarital sex people are having, how much, you know, same-sex sex they're having, how much they're masturbating, and so on. None of that really changes. Um, and, you know, at what age people start having sex, that's not really different. You know, it's different by like a few months, depending on whether you're religious or not religious. So this this idea that when you let go of religion, all of a sudden you're going to become this crazy sexual sybarite with no morals – that's just not borne out by the evidence. The evidence is that people do about what they did beforehand. They just don't feel this pointless guilt about it. Yeah. They don't have this sense of God peeking into their bedroom and taking notes. And so there's Unless they're goodness. into that. Unless they're into that, exactly. Yes, there must be somebody for whom that's their cake. But um, <laughs> rule 34, right? Yeah. Um, um, but in fact, so there's starting to be this idea in the atheist community that sex is one of our big selling points, that a... a improved sex life and that obviously that's not an argument for why god doesn't exist that's you know just an argument for why once you accept that god doesn't exist you can live a happy life as an atheist um um and so you know there's starting to be like uh atheist conferences that are specifically about sexuality about sexuality from a secular perspective and so on so you know there's been a little bit of prudish pushback and oh no you can't talk about that but mostly it's actually been very accepting and very supportive and i i think that one of the one of the reasons why i've become as recognized and as accepted uh, as i am as an atheist writer is that people really like and appreciate my writing about sex you know it, it, this kind of reminds me of something else that i was i, I read uh, after the supreme court kicked out one part of doma is that 
is that the LGBT community has been trying to, not trying, maybe they've been portraying a little bit more of the, portraying sort of the, hey, we're just like you, monogamous um, partners, because that's a lot easier for people to accept or to, to you know what I mean? If they, if they think, hey, they're just like, they're just like us, monogamous, you know, people, you know, with a two-family home type of thing. And to try to downplay some, some of the more polyamorous or those with open relationships um, because it's easier for, for straight people who are, are against gay rights to swallow uh, if, they, if they think, oh, wow, they are having this crazy sex out there. When studies show that, that is, is, at least for, for gay men, there are more that have at least semi-open relationships, at least or at least they're open about it, right? Right, right, um, yeah. Um, um, and certainly I have seen that in the LGBT community, and it's been distressing. You know, it's... And I certainly I understand from a strategic perspective, you know, wanting to present LGBT people as, you know, we're just like you, we're just regular Americans. And to the degree that that's true, I don't have a problem with that. But it's come at the expense of throwing those of us who aren't, you know, monogamously married, two kids, you know, going to church, you know, living in the suburbs, etc. It's kind of thrown us under the bus. Mm -hmm. And um, it's saying, it's like, well, no, though we agree with you that those are the bad people, as opposed to saying, look, most of us are kind of just living these ordinary American lives. Some of us aren't. And you know what? Some of you aren't either. And that's okay, too. Um, You know, that's you know, as long as what everybody's doing is, you know, consensual and not harmful and so on, then what business is it of yours? So I have seen that happen in the LGBT community. And I suppose it might happen in the atheist community and the atheist movement as we do get more mainstream. Um, You know, it's possible that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, uh, there will be this strategy of trying to make us look just like everybody else. Um, Right now, I'm not seeing that. And the other thing is that, the atheist movement is a very young movement right now. When you look at the demographics of who doesn't believe in God, at least in the United States, it's – and the, first of all, the rates are going up at a dramatic rate, but they're especially going up among people who are 25 and under. And people who are 25 and under are also people who are more comfortable with sexual fluidity and more comfortable with, you know, homosexuality, bisexuality, you know, transgenderism, more comfortable with, you know, polyamory, open relationships, more comfortable with kink and so on. And so I I suspect, at least I hope, maybe I'm just being a pie-eyed optimist here, but I hope that as the atheist community matures and does become more mainstream, and as the people who are young now, you know, become, you know, middle-aged and older, that 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 embrace of you know sexual diversity uh doesn't get doesn't get lost because this is something that that is a, a strong value for a lot of young people now at least you know young people who aren't you know fundamentalist christians i i think yeah, there's gonna be, do you know who stephen fry is sure you sound like you're the, the, act, the, the actor right the, the actor he's he does this great show right. on Q, uh, bbc called qi extremely mm-hmm. smart extremely funny He's an atheist. He's gay. I think if he just comes out as kinky, because everybody who sees Stephen Fry loves Stephen. Almost, I mean, I'm sure there's some weirdos out there who don't like Stephen Fry. But I've shown people, you know, Stephen Fry videos and, and say, look, he's such a great guy. And I think if he comes out as kinky, then we'll have the triumvirate and everyone, as soon as Stephen Fry does it. Because everybody I know, you can't not like Stephen Fry. It's impossible. Um, uh-huh. So once he comes out, then I think, speaking of coming out, 
I've always asked these to, to people who are who are kinky and out. It's a very difficult. I mean, it's something that we wish we could do. Um, have you always been out? Have you always been totally fearless, or is this uh, you know how long have you been out? I'm just curious about how that came to be. Um, <laughs> long long pause. Sure. I'm trying to think how to tell the story, you know, without it being you know taking hours. Uh, the short answer is I've been out pretty much about being kinky pretty much since my early twenties, mm-hmm. and. I made a pretty deliberate decision. It was when I was starting to write professionally, and the first place that I ever wrote professionally for was On Our Backs magazine, which is a lesbian sex magazine. And I considered, when I first started writing for them, I considered writing under a, a pseudonym, you know, because, I, you know, it's like, do I want to keep this distance between this, you know, sex writing that I'm doing, you know, some of which was kinky, and, you know, do I want to keep a lid on that and keep that private? And... You know, and I made this deliberate decision. I kind of looked at what is my life going to be like if I, and especially what is my writing career going to be like, if I have to keep that barriered off, if I have to keep that in another room. Um, and, you know, you know, it's like I have to pretend that, you know, that's not really me. And when I do other writing, you know, I don't get to build the reputation, you know, with between both kinds of writing and so on. And so to a great extent, it was almost a professional decision. You know, I decided I don't want to do that in my professional life. I just want to have my writing be my writing and to have it all be me. Um, now, I do realize that I have had and still do have a certain degree of privilege in being able to do that. I have a family that's pretty progressive. You know, I think that they're somewhat uncomfortable about the kink thing and we don't talk about it at great length. But, you know, they're basically progressive. Um, They weren't going to disown me or anything like that. You know, I live in San Francisco, you know, which is very you know, mostly very accepting and very supportive of diverse sexualities. Um, and, you know, so I was lucky in that. And also, you know, I did this at a fairly young age. So, you know, I think it's in some ways harder to come out when you're middle-aged or older because you've already, you know, you have kids, you have a job, you know, that you could risk. I basically just started out with, I'm never going to take a job that isn't okay with me being kinky and out. And that limited my job prospects, but it also made my career trajectory kind of interesting. <laughs> um, um, so, but again, that there was a certain level of privilege, you know, it's like, you know, my family is, isn't rich far from it, but you know, if I was having a hard time, they could bail me out. You know, if I was between jobs or whatever, they could help me with my rent for a month or two. And that's not true for everybody. And mm. so I do think that being out is, it was, it's like being gay or lesbian or trans or bi. It's like being an atheist. It's like almost anything. The degree to which we can come out is the degree to which we're going to undercut myths and misinformation and bigotry against us. But I'm never going to judge anybody else for not being as out as I am. I'm wondering what your thoughts are or why people seem to be more accepting of of someone being gay or bi than kinky. I've got, I know a friend who came out to her mom first as lesbian and she was fine. And then when she came out as kinky, she was like, listen, you need to get help. It was, it was completely different. I wonder if it's because people see are now at a point where they see, uh, that it's an identity that being, uh, not being straight is just as an identity as being straight. You know, it's not something it's who you are. Whereas some people see BDSM or kink as, as an activity and less as an identity. Um, 
or because they, they, you know, whenever they see any kink in the media, it's always, you know, it's always uh, some professional dominatrix who's screaming worm all the time. Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't or it's know. shown as a sign of that the character is evil or mentally unstable or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's a really good question. I don't think there's any one answer, and I think that some of it is that. You know, LGBT people have been doing education about this now for decades, and we've been coming out for decades. And that's, you know, we've been doing, you know, serious advocacy work, you know, politically and culturally and socially and so on, you know, to counter these myths, you know, in a very active way since 1969 and to a great extent before that. And so... So to some extent, I think it's just that. It's, you know, we haven't been doing that as much in the kink community. We haven't been coming out as much. We don't have, you know, lobbying groups and so on. Um, And, you know, maybe we need to be doing that more. Um, I think, though, that some of it is what you say, that people see being, you know, being gay as, or beginning at least, to see being gay as something that you are and being kinky as something that you do. And again, I think that that's to a great extent a matter of, you know, we need to do education and so on. It's like, and I know that there are some people who come to kink later in life, but I know there's a lot of us, and I'm certainly one of them, who I've been wired this way for as long as I've been sexual. I've mm. been kinky. Um, and, I, and I don't mean since I was 18. I mean since I was eight. Yeah, so I think that's true for a lot of, of kinky people, but we don't talk about it as much. Um, but again, that's kind of going back to we haven't done the education. I also think that people see or are beginning to see being gay or lesbian or bisexual as about love and as about relationships, you know, and about family. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, you, you know, you, you can't help who you love, you know, and, you know, you just, you love who you love. And, you know, as a culture, we love love, you know, people Mm -hmm. love love and we think love is awesome. Um, but we're not as comfortable with sex, and I think people tend to see kink as being, it's about sex. It's not as not being about love. And, of course, often that's true, just like often being gay is not always about love. Sometimes it's about just having fun sex with people that you get along with reasonably well or whoever you met in the bar that night, you know, and that's fine, too. And uh, so, But I think that people do see being gay as about relationships and about love and about marriage and about family, and they don't see kink in the same way. They see it about sex, and so sort of it gets much more tied up with our negativity and guilt and fear and shame about sex, you know, in a sense that any kind of pursuit of sex is sybaritic and selfish and so on, unless it's in the service of love and marriage. Um, so I, I think that that's a lot of it, but, you know, but I don't know. And honestly, I do think that a lot of it is just we haven't been as out and as as we haven't done a, you know, really serious public campaign about being out in the way that gay people have and i think that that's you know the more we can do that uh the more you know the better off we're going to be it's also gonna, i think it's going to take baby steps as far as how it's you know how uh, like being gay has been portrayed in the media at first it was jack tripper in three's company he's you know, he'd act wacky and that would be gay, you know, and now we have gay characters who they're not the punchline of jokes, you know. Well, exactly. And that took, again, years of, of advocacy and years of pushing. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know if you've seen or read The Celluloid Closet about depictions of gay people, the history of the depictions of gay people in film. And for decades, gay people in movies were either crazy or evil or jokes. Yeah. 
And it took decades of like actually advocating, writing to TV studios, writing to movie studios, you know, saying we're tired of the bisexual woman being the serial killer, knock it off, um, to get that. And um, and so I think that we need to to you know if we start doing that with kinky people more and getting encouraging people to come out, encouraging celebrities to come out, um, then I think that. Um, you know, that we'll be better off, you know, but again, I'm not going to, you know, blame anybody for not being out. It's like, you know, it's the same thing with being atheist. It's like, I, you know, it's like we need to encourage people to come out about being atheist while at the same time understanding that not everybody's in the same position and not everybody can do it. I think we can solve both problems. We need a, an NBC TV show that is <laughs> a person who's uh, an atheist, gay, a kinky person who solves crimes. Awesome. There we go. They there use, we go. Let's pitch that. They use their they use their kink to solve crimes and <laughs> um uh I've really enjoyed talking with you and uh, I hope someone I I'm going to hope people pick up your book. There's a link on the website for it to, uh, uh on massacast.com but also uh you can just of course go to Amazon. It's Bending Dirty Kinky Stories About Pain, Power, Religion, Unicorns and More and if nothing else to solve the age old age old question how does a unicorn fuck a rainbow? You can solve solve it uh, by reading the book i really can't thank you enough for for doing this oh you're so welcome it's been a, just a joy and a pleasure this has been a wonderful conversation i really enjoyed it thanks greta again her book bending dirty kinky stories about pain power religion unicorns and more uh email me mastercast at gmail.com friend me on fetlife mastercast you can also like the facebook page if you want to remind me that i haven't done shit to the Facebook page for the Massacast. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.